It was about 1900 BC. Jacob and his family were living in the land of Canaan. But if we had been around then, we probably wouldn't have thought that Jacob was a terribly important man. But he was. For God had promised his grandfather, Abraham, that he would bless him, that he would give him many descendants, and he would give his descendants the land of Canaan. And that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jacob's father Isaac had been the heir to that promise. And then God appeared to Jacob and confirmed it to him as well. From him would come the nation whose history would be central to God's plans for humanity. His family and their descendants would be the chosen people of God. And God would always be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, Jacob had twelve sons, but his favorite son was Joseph. And we saw two weeks ago that Joseph was captured and sold by his brothers. They made up a story and told to the father, and sons of Jacob deceived Jacob as Jacob had deceived his own father. And Joseph was sent to Egypt as a slave. And then last week, the camera turned back onto that family of Jacob, the people of God, and what we saw was ugly, wasn't it? Sordid, sinful, wicked. And yet God was at work, even in that situation, to bring about his plans and purposes, and fulfill his promises. And so now, in chapter 39, the camera turns back to Joseph, and we are looking to see God's hand there as well. And we will not be disappointed. In Egypt, Joseph was bought by this guy called Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard, a high-ranking officer in Egypt. And the Bible says the Lord was with him. The Lord caused everything he did to go well. And so eventually Potiphar put him in charge of his whole house. And God blessed the household. Things were going really well. Joseph, one of God's people, was being a blessing to the nations. And Eventually, Potiphar delegated everything to him. Let him run everything, with one notable exception. You know, from verse 6, that Potiphar must have been a bit Malaysian, because the one thing he concerned himself with, when he delegated everything to Joseph, was his food. Right. It's a menu. Now, Joseph was a good-looking guy, as Marianne pointed out. And Potiphar's wife tried to bed him. Lie with me, she said. And she probably said it much nicer. Lie with me, you know. In brazen, lustful passion. But he refused. He knew it was wrong. Verse 8. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. He didn't say the food, huh? He says, except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice, Joseph's behavior is just the opposite of the behavior of the rest of God's people back in Canaan. 
that we looked at last week. He was being righteous. Those guys were wicked. He was, he was standing firm for righteousness. But the lady was persistent. Every day she prepositioned, prepositioned him. Uh, sometimes she, verse 10 talks about how she, she tried to get him sometimes to be with her rather than to lie with her. Maybe trying to get him to take one step at a time. But he refused. But one day, he was in the house working and they happened to be alone. She grabbed him by one of his garments, we're not sure which one, and pulled it off in a fit of passion. Lie with me, she said. But Joseph fled temptation, made a dash for it, leaving the garment in her arms. Some people say that hell hath no fury like a woman's heart. Now one can't really generalize, but that is certainly the case here. To attack him, as well as to protect her own reputation, she makes up a story. She calls the man of the house and complains, well, complains about her husband. Verse 14. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice, he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She's actually the one who's guilty, but she's accusing Joseph and blaming Potiphar. And she keeps the garment as evidence. And when her husband gets home, she tells him the same story. Verse 17. That Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, to, to humiliate me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Potiphar was very angry. We don't know if it's because of what Joseph allegedly did or because his wife blamed him. Probably both. He threw Joseph into prison. And at the end of verse 20, there was Joseph in prison. As a slave, he had been blessed by God. He'd worked up to be this trusted servant and steward and well, now he was in prison in a worse position than he was when he came to Egypt. The Lord had been with him at Potiphar's house, but was the Lord with him now? In this? Or had God deserted him? It doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, if he had messed around with Potiphar's wife and ended up here, then he can only blame himself, huh? But he didn't. That's why he's here. And I wonder if any of you have ever been in a situation like this. When you try to do the right thing only to find that you come out the worst for it? When you suffer for doing good? 1 Peter 3.17 says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And that is what happened to Joseph. He suffered for doing the right thing. 
Where was God when Joseph was put in prison? Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And you know what happens? God shows him steadfast love, gives him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And in the end, over a period of time, the keeper of the prison puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who are in the prison. He ends up, like Potiphar, delegating all his work to Joseph. Because whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it work. And so, from being a slave in charge of the master's affairs of his household, he becomes a prisoner, but in charge of the prison. Now, it took me about two minutes to tell you this, but if you add the time when he was a slave, and you add the time he was a prisoner together, it comes to 13 years. We're not told the breakdown. So it's not something that happened overnight, is it? But sometime after Joseph was put in prison, and eventually elevated in prison, he met two other prisoners. One was Pharaoh's chief baker, and one was his chief cupbearer. Now, let me tell you, these are sensitive jobs, because they had access to the king, and would have had opportunity to poison him. Somehow or other, both these guys end up on Pharaoh's bad side. And they are put in custody. And Joseph attended them. One night, they each had a dream. Now, these dreams can't be like normal dreams, and it's be somewhere other different, and particularly vivid, because, because in the morning, they are both really troubled by their dreams. And when Joseph saw them, he was, he was really concerned. He says, what's wrong? Why are your faces so downcast? And they say, in verse 38, they say, Verse 8, not 38, verse 8, huh? We're chapter 40, verse 8. We have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Right, Joseph is very clear on who's doing the interpreting. God interprets dreams. Yet Joseph is the one who's going to communicate God's message. Please tell me. So the chief cupbearer goes first. Verse 49. It's not verse 49, it's verse 9. In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. There's a dream. Now, what does it mean? Verse 12. This is the interpretation, Joseph said. In three, the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Right? That's the interpretation. He's going to be given back his old job. And then Joseph adds a personal plea. Verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and 
Here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Interesting he should call this house, this prison, a pit. Well, the chief baker has been listening all this time. Cupbearer has given his dream and Joseph gave interpretation. Sounds quite good, huh? So, okay, I'll give it a go. Nothing to worry about. So he tells his story. Verse 16. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Joseph said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Uh, that's not quite what the baker wanted to hear. But that's exactly what happened. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he threw a party and he lifted up the heads of the cupbearer and the baker. I'm sure you've noticed the pun. The chief cupbearer's head is lifted up in that he gets his job back. All is well. The chief baker's head is lifted up in that he is hung up to die. And so Joseph was right. Interpretation really does belong to God. And God really did reveal it to Joseph. And so Joseph is vindicated. The cupbearer who has the king's ear has promised to try and get him out of jail. And so Joseph waited. And waited. And waited. And waited. But verse 23. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He forgot him. So think of Joseph. Languishing there. He's done his, doing his job well, but he's got nowhere to go. Was God with Joseph? Yes, he was. Was Joseph's life going according to plan? Yes, it was. But it was God's plan, not Joseph's plan. And I wonder if you see perils like that in your own life. You're waiting for God to act. You're waiting for something that you've been praying for. And at one point, it looks like it's coming. And then you're still waiting. The chief cupbearer forgot his promise to Joseph. And Joseph was waiting in prison for another two years. But he was exactly where God wanted him for the next part of the story. For after two years, Pharaoh himself had one of these dreams. It's there at the beginning of chapter 41. In this dream, he's standing by the Nile River, and out of the river come these seven cows, nice, plump, fat cows. 
and they are feeding on the reed grass. And then look, behind them come another seven cows, and they are feeding the horrible looking cows, and then boom, those thin cows all gobble up the fat cows. And that's it. Fair away, sir. And then he falls asleep again. And he has another dream. And look, seven ears of grain, all coming out from the same shoot. Big eyes, fat ears, plump, growing on one stalk. And then, after that, there's another seven years, and they're thin, pathetic, and look like they've been scorched by the east wind that comes from the desert, nothing much there, and boom, 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 boom. Right? The seven thin ears have gobbled up the seven fat ears, and, and that's it. Pharaoh wakes up. Pharaoh is really perturbed by these dreams. Or by this dream, because it's actually one in two. And he calls the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. And no one can interpret it. Then, and only then, the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph. And he finally speaks up. Verse 9. He says to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night. <coughs> he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Now, in that case, Pharaoh quickly sends for Joseph. They brought him out of the prison, which is, in, in, in verse 14 again, is metaphorically called the pit. He shaved himself, because Egyptian men were clean-shaven. Changed his clothes, and he comes before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, verse 15, I have a dream. No, it doesn't mean it says, I've had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it was said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, Joseph is very careful to give credit where credit is due. Verse 16 he says, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Right? Joseph is not a magician. He is a spokesman for God. And Pharaoh tells a dream to Joseph. Verse 17. Behold, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive. I notice plump is attractive. Okay? Just want to get into that. All right. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one could have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as the beginning. And I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. 
But Joseph can explain it. He says to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. Verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice the theology. God is in control. He is about to do something. And he is telling Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is what he's about to do. Verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. After that will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. The fact that God is in control, that he has fixed that this is going to happen, that he's determined to bring it about, does not for a moment mean that people ought to be passive about it. God's sovereignty and human responsibility both happen together, and God's sovereignty is never an excuse for passivity. And so Joseph proceeds to advise Pharaoh as to what to do. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him up over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the family. Now, seems a reasonable idea. And in fact, it seemed a good idea to Pharaoh and to his servants. And so he turned to them and said, verse 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And he looks at Joseph and he says, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Joseph is the wise man. The man in whom the Spirit dwells. Even Pharaoh, the pagan king, recognizes him. And because he is the wise man, whom the Spirit dwells, then he ought to be the ruler. And so Pharaoh says to him in verse 14, he says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then he takes a signet ring from his hand and gives it to Joseph, so Joseph can sign for him. Clothes him in garments of linen, fine linen, with a golden chain of office around his neck. 
And he makes him ride in the second chariot behind only Pharaoh himself. And the outriders in the motorbike go, Nino, Nino, as they part the roads of the busy Cairo traffic. Then, no, 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 actually it's better. It's better. The king makes the attendants cry out before him. Bow the knee. Bow the knee. And before Joseph, everyone in Egypt had to bow. For Pharaoh set him over all the land. And he said to him, verse 44, he said, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. In other words, because I have authority over everyone in Egypt, nothing can happen without you saying so. I give the authority to you. And Pharaoh also gave Joseph a new name. Verse 45. It was Zapenath Panea. Joseph is easier actually. We think that it means God speaks and lives. And if that is the case, then it's because the living God had spoken to him through Joseph. And Joseph also gave him a marriage to Asenath, a daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. A priest of On had a high position in Egyptian society, and so Joseph marries in the aristocracy. And then Joseph goes out through all the land of Egypt. You see that at the end of verse 46. And you see that again, well before that in fact, at the end of verse 45. Twice he tells about Joseph going out to all the land of Egypt. So it's important. He goes through all the land so that everyone bows before him. At the age of 30, he starts his work to rule Egypt in order to save her from the famine. He was, in other words, the Lord and Saviour of Egypt in the service of Pharaoh the king. Just as God had predicted, there were seven years of plenty. Joseph collected lots of food over those seven years, grain and great abundance, so much grain, that they'd end up, they give up, give up trying to measure it. Kept the food in the cities, kept it away, and as God blessed Egypt, he also blessed him with two sons. The first he called Manasseh, which means making forget. For he said in verse 51, God has made me forget all the hardship in my father's house. He's, he's put the past behind him. He's dealt with it. The second he calls Ephraim, which is derived from the word which means faithful. For he said, God has, fruitful rather, fruitful. Right? God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has been blessing him even in Egypt. But then those seven years of plenty come to an end. And seven years of famine start. There was famine all over the world, but in Egypt there was going to be bread. Because God was saving them through Joseph. When the land of Egypt was famished, run out of food, where do you go? But Pharaoh. People go to Pharaoh and cry out to Pharaoh for food. And what does Pharaoh say to them? Verse 55. He says to them, Go to Joseph. 
what he says to you, do. Joseph's in charge. Want food? You go to him and do whatever he says. And so when the famine spread throughout Egypt, Joseph opened the storehouses and started selling the wheat. And it wasn't just the Egyptians who got the benefit. Joseph's, Joseph's blessing was, was felt by the nations because in verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, that's as far as we're going in the story of Joseph. And at this part of the story, we haven't yet seen the point, have we? Why was God doing this? Why did God put Joseph in the position that he did in, in Egypt? Why did he use him to make sure there's enough food for the Egyptians and the nations in, in the famine? What's, what's the point of his suffering and elevation? We'll discover this over the next couple of weeks, but at this point, we don't know what God is doing. We don't know why. But trust me, I've read ahead. And there is a purpose to this. A purpose that involves God keeping his promises to Abraham. And it's like that in our own lives too, isn't it? We see things happen one step at a time. And we don't see the whole picture. We know God's big plan for the world to bring everything under Christ. We know God's big plan for us, having saved us to, to bring us to glory with Him and in the meantime to transform us to become more and more like Christ in our character. But what we don't see is how the circumstances of our lives today necessarily contribute to that big plan. Why do we have to go through what we are going through now? We don't know. But trust God. Not only has he read ahead, he has written the story. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it involves keeping his promises to you in Christ. One day, perhaps only in the new creation, we'll be able to look back and see that he has been faithful. We'll look back and say, he has done all things well. But what have we seen so far about Joseph? How does, how does he point forward to Christ? Well, let's think back on the things that happened in today's passage. Remember how resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife ended up leaving Joseph in prison? Joseph was doing the righteous thing in contrast to, to those who were God's people. The rest of those who were God's people. He was the one person among the Israelites who, who lived up to his status as one of God's chosen people. And that's what Jesus was like, wasn't he? He was the one person who lived, truly lived, as the people of God ought to. 
He was the true people of God. And yet it was because he was righteous that Joseph suffered. He suffered for doing the right thing. He was a victim of injustice. It wasn't fair, but it happened. And yet, he remained faithful and true. We were reminded earlier that it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 3.17 And the passage goes on. For Christ also suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was a victim of jealousy and injustice. Wicked men put Jesus to death. Yet, Jesus remained faithful to the Father. He was obedient despite of the fact it was unfair for him. The ultimate example of faithfulness in the midst of unjust suffering is Jesus himself. And Joseph is like Jesus in this. And you and I, who belong to Jesus, we are called to be like Jesus also. If you suffer for doing evil, you deserve it. But if you suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. 1 Peter 2.20 is talking about slaves, but application to us as well. What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do a good and suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Be patient in suffering, and stand firm in doing what is right. Even if it means disadvantage at work, even if it means ostracism by family, even if it means being scorned on by friends, do the right thing even if you suffer for it. You are following the example of Jesus to whom Joseph points. Joseph is like Jesus in other ways in this passage. He is the wise man. Pharaoh said to him, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And Jesus is the ultimate wise man, who not only speaks wisdom, but, but embodies it. All the treasures of God's wisdom are found in him. Joseph was considered wise because God spoke through him in interpreting dreams. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. He's the Word of God. In Jesus, we don't just have an interpretation of a dream from God, but the interpretation of God Himself. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, he has exegeted him, he has interpreted him, he has made it clear to us. In Christ, we have all the treasures of the wisdom of God. 
Joseph is the man in whom the Spirit dwells. God was with him. That is why he is equipped to, 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 to rule Egypt. And the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. He is anointed by the Spirit as the Christ, the Messiah, the King, who will not only rule Israel, but the world. And he was declared to be the servant of the Lord that Isaiah the prophet had foreseen. Isaiah 42 verse 1 talks about him. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. The servant of God upon whom is the spirit brings justice to the nations. Because he is the wise one. In chapter 52, ten chapters later, still talking about the servant. He says, my servant shall act wisely. And she shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. And how does he act wisely? What does he look like? Well, that wise action was dying to bear the sins of many. In Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his soul. That is Jesus' wisdom. And because he did that, because he was wise in obeying the Father, God would raise him up and exalt him. He shall be exalted. And he shall be given a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Because he acted wisely in trust and obedience, he would indeed become the leader. You see, Jesus was the wise man who was greater. Not just of Joseph, but Solomon himself, he's the one who truly deserves to rule the world. Now as followers of Jesus, we too are called to be wise. And this also is linked to the Spirit. Because for us, wisdom is how to live in this world under God. And it's the Spirit who leads us to live in a wise way, in a way that takes into account who God is, who we are, and what our world is like. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Look carefully as how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. How do you walk wise? You make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You do not be foolish, you understand God's will. You do not get drunk with wine, but you are filled by the Spirit. Dressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. It's living the, the wise life, living the godly life, living the spirit led life, being like Jesus in wise. Notice again how. Joseph keeps on getting humiliated and then exalted. He is humiliated when he's sold as a slave and, and put in part of his house. But then he's exalted and put in charge of the whole house. And then he's humiliated even worse and, and put in prison on false charges, the pit. But then he's exalted and put in charge of everything in the prison. And then he's highly exalted and put in charge of everything in the country. And Joseph ends up at the right hand of power. But first, he has to suffer pain and rejection and humiliation. And 
And that's the same with Jesus, isn't it? He suffered humiliation first before he was exalted. He humbled himself to be born and live as one of us. He humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. And God raised him from the pit of death and highly exalted him. He set him in his right hand, giving him the place of ultimate authority in the universe. And all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. Pharaoh commanded the Egyptians to bow to Joseph. And God commands everyone to bow to Jesus. For the name of Jesus, every knee must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. And when the Egyptians came to Pharaoh to, to save them from the famine, what did he do? He sent them to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Do whatever he says. And God commands everyone who comes to him to, to, to ask him to save them. What does he say? He says, go to Jesus. Do whatever he says. Joseph was the saviour of Egypt who was saved by suffering first and then was exalted. And Jesus is the saviour of the world who was saved by suffering first and then was exalted. Joseph, the saviour ruler of Egypt, points to Christ, the saviour ruler of the world. We are not saviors. But like Jesus, our path to glory starts humility. Starts with humility. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our path to exaltation starts with obedience and sacrifice and submission. But the day will come when the sons of God are revealed. And until then, we must be willing to suffer. Share in suffering, Paul says to Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ. The pattern Christ set for us is suffering and then glory. We are to follow him. Now, we've seen that Joseph, in this narrative, is very much like Jesus in God's meta-narrative, God's picture. And we follow Jesus. And so we're here in a secondary way. But if Joseph is like Jesus because he is God's agent to save and, and rule the world, then, then who are we like in, this, in that big picture in this passage. When we look at the story, who is in the parallel position to us? Well, the people that we are most like in the story aren't even in the story. They are back in the land of King. They are the chosen people of God as, as we are the chosen people of God. You see, all these things that were happening to Joseph and Potiphar and the cupbearer and Pharaoh and Egypt actually were happening for the benefit of God's people. 
Jacob and his family far away. All these things actually were happening in order to save them. And we'll see how next week. All these things were happening actually because God had made promises to them. And yet these are the people that we saw last week who were sinful, wretched, undeserving people. These were the people that we saw two weeks ago were the very ones whose treachery caused Joseph to be sold into slavery in the first place. These were the people who needed saving. And they didn't even know. God was slowly changing them but had a long way to go. Yet these things were happening for their benefit. Even though they didn't deserve it. And even though they're not even seeing this part of the story. And they're happening because God loved them and made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so while this passage is not about them, it is for them. And all these years, Joseph was suffering for them. But they didn't know. And as people of God, when we look back, we realize that actually it's like that for us too. We are treacherous, sinful, undeserving people. We needed saving and we didn't even know it. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fulfillment of God's promises. Not only did he suffer, but he was raised and exalted and, and we still didn't know. Next week, the people of God will come to meet Jesus. As we came to meet Jesus appreciate the Savior who suffered and was exalted for us.